Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Remain standing, if you would, as we hear from Ephesians chapter 2. Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. Um, I ask, uh, after reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, I ask that you respond with thanks be to God. Starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, well, my name's Ben. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here. I've been away for a little while. It's been um, over two months since I've had the privilege of preaching here. This church um, gave my family and I just an incredible gift by uh, sending us away on sabbatical and uh, returning. I feel just very, very refreshed. I feel healthier um, and fuller because of our time away. So thank you uh, for allowing us that uh, incredible gift. Um, I, brought, I wanted to show a couple of pictures from our time away. Some, some people have asked. Um, this is our, kind of the beginning of our journey out west. We actually went and saw family first for a week, but this is in Phoenix and one of the first desert hikes that we did in Phoenix. We would go super early in the morning, so it wasn't crazy hot. This is uh, at the Grand Canyon. Um, so we kind of explored a lot of Arizona we did Sedona and the Red Rocks and then Flagstaff and then went up to the Grand Canyon. And it's, it's amazing if you've never seen it. Um, no pictures could ever do it justice. It will actually blow you away to see it in person. This is a, a date with my wife. Um, it was on her birthday and we were in California, in Oceanside, California, and went and watched the sun set over the Pacific and... Uh, really special night together. And there's a whole lot more pictures. I just about filled my entire phone up with pictures while we were away, but I just wanted to kind of give you a few highlights of that um, because some people said, I want to see some pictures. So I did. Um, uh, and, and, and as Lucius was saying, uh, we're starting a new series today, a series that uh, is coming out of just some of the things that God has, has been doing in me personally, my time away. I hope you'll forgive me for pressing pause on our series uh, going through the book of Genesis for just a few weeks uh, to share just some of the stuff that, um, that is, is really on my heart for our church that I feel like will be an encouragement to you as well. Um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and, and be opening it up to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll, we'll be jumping out from there. Um, uh, this isn't 
the typical way that we do. Uh, we normally start in the beginning of a book of the Bible. We work through it methodically, verse by verse. Um, uh, and this is more of a topical series that I'm going to do about living on mission. And if, if that's kind of a new phrase for you, um, what I mean, all I mean by that is that every single one of us uh, are, are called by God to go and make disciples of all nations and baptizing people and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded of us. And uh, that means that you and I, every single one of us, ought to think of ourselves as players in this great big mission that God is accomplishing on the earth. In other words, we should all learn to think of ourselves as missionaries. We should all think strategically about the places that God has put us, about our workplace and our friends and our neighbors and our family members and those that are around us and everyone that we come in contact with. And we should be asking the question, why has God placed me here? What does he intend to do through me for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom? You follow? Everybody with me? We all awake? Good. Okay. Um, so that's where we're headed on this series. Um, I found that as God has been sort of reestablishing some of these core convictions in me that, that I would say he really put into me early on in my Christian life 20 years ago, that it's increased my passion for both his glory and his kingdom on the earth. And I anticipate this is going to do the same thing for you. My hope, my dream in this is that some of you who I mean, many of you are already mobilized. You are already living like this. You're already looking around at what are the ways that God might want to use me um, to advance his kingdom. And, and some of you are not, maybe. Maybe some of you, you lived like that at some point in your life, but recently or somewhere along the lines, you've kind of started to sit on the sidelines again. And I just, and, or maybe you kind of are bouncing back and forth between the sidelines and uh, living on mission. And wherever you are, my hope is that this is going to excite you again to start looking around and saying, God, use me. Use me for your glory. Give me purpose and, and help me to carry it out. Um, so pray with me before we go any further, and then we'll dig into this first sermon. Father in heaven, um, God, I recognize that it doesn't matter what I say if you don't move in our hearts, Lord. Um, that your word is, is powerful regardless. Your word is is powerful enough to transform our lives, but that your word can also land on hard and rocky soil. And, and I just pray that wouldn't be the case today for any of us, Lord. I just pray that right now you would open our eyes to see what you want to show us, open our ears to hear what you want to say to us so that we could be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, um, I want to say this from the outset. I'm going to be talking today about God's love for you, his great love for you as an individual. And I think, I was kind of reflecting on this, talking to my wife some about this towards the end of the week, that 
I'll at least speak for myself personally, that sometimes I have shied away just a little bit from emphasizing God's incredible, overwhelming love for us. Because I have wanted to avoid the trap of becoming man-centered, human, human being-centered in our teaching or preaching um, or our worldview. And what I mean is that ultimately this life isn't about us. Your life, my life, it's not really about us. It's actually about God, first and foremost. This, this book, the Bible, when, when you read it, honestly, from beginning to end, you are going to find that it is all about God, first and foremost. And, and so in an effort to keep that um, perspective, that our lives aren't about us, that, that, that our preaching ought not to just be about us, but that the, the God is the one who matters. It's God's glory that we're concerned with. He's the main player in the story, right? Then, then I have at times shied away from emphasizing how, how incredible his love is for us. And I want to emphasize it today. I want to emphasize this. I, I, the Lord has done a work in my own heart over sabbatical to just refresh me, um, to see again, to see afresh from some new perspectives how loved I really am. And I, and I hope he's going to do that for some of you, uh, for many of you here this morning. Um, one of the best ways, in fact, that God's glory is displayed is through his, his overwhelming and, and undeserved love toward us, right? Right? Um, and so let's consider that in more depth today. The first point for those of you who are note takers, I want to look at God's unique love for you. Think his particular or special love for you. It says in verse 4, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, his great love for us was the thing that motivated him to action, to saving us, to redeeming us. That's what these verses are about. That when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. That's okay. You can go see the kids and hang out. That'd be a lot of fun. Um. And, and so I want us to think about this. I want us to think about the fact that God loves us with a great love. That's what this verse says. Um, when Tiffany and I got married about 17 years ago, we had this little dog, a little Maltipoo, you know, mixture of Maltese and a poodle named Lola. And Lola was very cute and very sweet, but she had some issues. Um, and I'll just list a few of those issues that were the top of my list. Um, number one, Lola could not stop licking. She had an obsession with licking to the point like it didn't matter how much you try to get her to stop. It was like n she never stopped licking. Maybe you're one of those people that likes dog licks. I do not like dog licks. 
I can only think about what else that dog has licked previously. Um, so that was the first thing. The second thing was that she had a tendency to lose her mind in a storm and destroy things and go to the bathroom everywhere. And, um, and if any of you have ever spent any time in the South, you know that it storms like every single day down there. It is like so many thunderstorms. And so this is a big problem if you live in the South and your dog can't handle a thunderstorm. But then maybe the thing that stands out most in my mind that drove me insane about Lola is that she could not do her business unless she found the perfect spot. She would fake it sometimes, like she was about to find her spot, and then she'd be like, nope, 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 that's not good, and then move on. And the later you were for work, the longer it took for her to find her spot. (laughs) And the wind had to be blowing in just the right direction, um, it, it just drove me crazy. And I can honestly say, it may not sound like it, but I loved Lola. But I can also say I did not always like Lola. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, I love my dog. I don't always l- like my dog. Well, if I were to ask you this morning... If you're a Christian, if I were to ask you, does God love you, you would most assuredly say, yes, without any hesitation, absolutely, God loves me. But if I were to ask you, does God like you right now, you might have a little pause. Or maybe there are certain times, maybe when you are struggling with sin or or something, something in particular that you would not be sure what to say uh, if I asked you, does God like you? Um, I think that we all struggle to believe deep down from time to time that God genuinely likes us. Perhaps, like me, you have a tendency to see yourself as one of billions of people in a crowd that God loves with a general love because he's God and he's full of love. Um, But my guess is that when you think about how God sees you individually, it's just you standing before God alone, that you struggle to have a confident assurance of God's deep and genuine love for you. And perhaps it's because you personally deal with some self-hatred or even just underlying frustration about who you are, where you are on this whole journey of becoming more and more like Jesus. And you assume or you imagine that God feels the same way about you that you feel about you. But I think if that's where you are this morning, that, that you're underestimating what it means that God has as a great love for you. Listen to what Jesus says about his relationship with us in, in John chapter 10. Verse 3, he says, The sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out calls them by name. And then down in verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own 
and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Here's what Jesus is saying about about his sheep, about Christians. He says, I know them the same way that the Father knows me and that I know the Father. This is a very intimate knowledge. He knows your name, Christian. He sees you right where you are, and he knows you and all of your ins and outs, all of your quirks, all of your strengths, all of your weaknesses, everything about your personality, the way that you're wired, what makes you tick. He knows you and he loves you. He loves you intimately. Notice what he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. The same sheep that he knows by name. These these individual sheep, not just the whole, not just the crowd. Jesus knows you and he died for you. Perhaps you've known that God so loved the world that he gave his only son but you haven't known his particular love for you as an individual. And it, I think it's, it's the only way to grow as a Christian is to know his love for you. Paul, Paul prayed to this effect in Ephesians chapter 3 for the church in Ephesus that they would come to, to a knowledge, to a real understanding and a deep knowledge of Christ's love for them in order that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a key to being a Christian, to living the Christian life, and to enjoying the Christian life, is knowing that you're really, really loved. That God doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just put up with you. He he doesn't just say, ah, all right, well, all right, I'll let you in. I'll let you in. You, you. You can kind of, as long as you kind of sit in the back, don't make a lot of noise, don't mess up whatever you do, but I'll let you in. You can kind of come in, stay on the fringes. Don't, I don't want to see you or hear you. That is not how God welcomes you into his family. He loves you as an individual. He likes you more than you can imagine. He delights in you. He created you the way you are. And listen to me, he likes what he makes. Paul got this. You know, Paul, before he became a Christian, was a pretty bad guy. He was um, going around persecuting the church, arresting people, throwing them in jail, and um, even approving of their execution. And I say all that to say that Paul could have easily thought of himself as one of those Christians that God just sort of tolerated, that he let him in maybe because of what he could bring to the table. You know, I can use you, Paul. I could, I have you go around and, and plant churches and get persecuted and beat and stoned. And I, you know, but that's really how, how this is going to work. I'll let you in. I'll tolerate you because you bring some things to the table. That is not at all the way that Paul saw God's love for him. Maybe you've heard a very famous verse 
Galatians 2.20, in the second half of that verse, Paul says this, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now Paul, very frequently, would use the plural you or the plural us when he talked about Christ's, what Christ had done for us or what God had done for us. But in this instance, he very, very intentionally does not do that. He very intentionally says that he lives his life by faith in the Son of God who loves me, who died for me. Paul was convinced of this, that Christ loved him as an individual and died for him as an individual. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loved him with a particular love in spite of his sinful past and even in spite of the sins that still plagued him as a believer. I wonder if you know that, Christian. This is how big the gospel is, that the Bible says the gospel through Jesus Christ, he has done away with your sin. That means, it doesn't mean that he doesn't know about your sin. He does. He's, he's, he's working in you through his spirit to help you to rid your life more and more of sin. He does see it. But he can look at you and not relate to you based upon your sin. If you are in Christ, listen to me, Your sin is not the most fundamental thing about you. Your sin is not the most fundamental thing about you. It is not the first thing that comes to God's mind when He looks at you. If you are in Christ, He has given you a new identity from which you live and from which you relate to God. An identity in Christ. God delights in you. Ephesians 2 says in verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Let me explain why this is so important. Um, Do you realize that part of what makes God God is that he does nothing out of obligation? He does absolutely nothing and gives absolutely nothing begrudgingly or under compulsion. If he did, it would make him a servant to something else or someone else. But God is absolutely sovereign and his sovereignty means that he does exactly and only what he wants to do. Which means that when he chose to give you the gift of forgiveness, when he chose to to save you, to redeem you, to bring you into his family, he was not, no one was twisting his arm. He wanted you. He knew exactly what he was getting. And he chose you. Because he loves you. He made you. And he likes what he made. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that our sins don't matter. I'm not saying that we can't grieve God. It's not at all what I mean. The Bible's clear that our sins can grieve God. The Bible's clear that we can live in a way that that either pleases God, which which we should strive for, or we can live in a way that doesn't please Him. But 
That's... Here's what the gospel means. It means that God isn't threatened by your current battle with sin. His love for you is not threatened by your current battle with sin. His love for you is not that fragile. The blood of Jesus Christ is more powerful than that. His love for you doesn't wax or wane based upon your daily or weekly performance. And that's good news. That's really good news. It means that we can come before His throne boldly because we're not coming based upon our own merit. We're coming based upon the merit of Christ. We're coming before Him. We are relating to Him as cleansed, righteous, blameless, blood-bought people. That's my first point. I need to move, I got to move quickly through the second two points. That they build upon that. Um, the first thing that I make sure that you understand is that God just doesn't just tolerate you. He thoroughly enjoys you as a unique individual. He's created you intentionally and he likes what you made. And having said that, I want to look at what, what our what does that mean for our identity as Christians? How do we need to think about our identity as Christians? Um, verses 5 and 6 get at this fact that we've been made alive together with Christ. We have been united with Him. And maybe that is something that you're familiar with, that if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old is passed away. The new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, the moment that you put your trust in Jesus, you're united with Him. His story becomes your story. His death, your death. His resurrection, your resurrection. His glorification, eventually your glorification. His righteousness gets imputed to you. You receive His righteousness. Um, but maybe you aren't clear on this. And I, and I say it because I think I was missing this um, until the Lord began to teach me over my sabbatical some things. At the same time that you are being conformed into the image of Christ, that you are, you are being made through this process of sanctification, that you are being made to look more and more like Jesus, you are also being transformed more and more into the unique God-glorifying individual that God intended for you to be. As, as you become more and more sanctified and more and more Christ-like, you're also becoming your true self, the person that only you can be in order to bring glory to God. And what that means is we're becoming who we're going to be for all of eternity. In um, verse 7 there, he says that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The Bible frequently turns our attention toward the coming ages, this, this time uh, in the future when all will be made right. And I wonder um, if you ever stop and think about what you will be like in the coming ages. The Bible says that when we see Jesus face to face, we will be made like him. The, 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 
process of sanctification will be completed. Sin will be done away with. You'll receive your glorified, resurrected body. You'll be made like him. And I've thought about that sometimes, and, and I've thought mostly, if I'm honest, maybe this is a little bit embarrassing, but I've thought mostly in terms of physically what that would be like. Like, maybe, just maybe, I will be 5'9", instead of 5'8", if I am so blessed. Um, maybe you've thought about that. Maybe you've thought, what will it be like to receive a perfect body, a perfect, resurrected, eternal body? Lately, I've been considering what this glorified version of me will be like in terms of my character, my personality, who I am at the core. And here's what I've come to. I believe there exists in the mind of God a Ben Preston, free from sin's corruption and sin's distortion, and united to the life-giving Spirit of Christ that will exist in all eternity, which is so glorious, so noble and faithful and loving and uniquely gifted by the Creator to glorify Him, that if I could meet Him now, I would not believe Him to be me. And I believe that is true for every single Christian. I believe for every single Christian that there exists in the mind of God a version of you that is so noble, so honorable, so loving, so faithful that if you could meet your future self now, you would not believe that it was you. The reason that this is the case for all of us is that sin has done a number on us. Sin, um, it, it's not just this aggravating thing that we have to try and put away. Sin is distorting us. It's, it's robbing us of who we were meant to be. I think that Romans 3.23 is getting at this when it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think he's, he's hitting on the fact that you and I, before the fall, we were made these glorious beings. And I don't, I don't mean as much about the physical here. Follow me. I'm, I'm talking about glorious beings. We were made to image God to reflect God in ways that nothing else in His creation reflects His image. And our sin has kept us from that in ways innumerable and is still keeping us from that, but God is in the process of removing that sin from our lives. That's what sanctification is. He is, he is shaving it off, right? He's he's. he's Sanding off the rough edges. He's making us more and more into who He always intended for us to be. And into the person that He sees when He looks into your future. The person that you will be that will glorify Him uniquely for all of eternity. This, I read an incredible book that talked about this, that was so crucial in opening my eyes to this by a scholar named Kelly Capick. And the book was called You're Only Human. And, and in it, he says this. 
He says, we are not trying to run from ourselves. Rather, Christ has freed us from the entanglements of sin, which deface and deform his image in us. The Redeemer has freed us in order that we may be our true selves. Run from your sin, yes, but don't imagine that to be a serious Christian, you need to have a different temperament or personality. Listen to this. God's goal is not for all of us to end up looking, sounding, and being the same. That confuses sameness with godliness. Not everyone needs to wear khakis, nor do they all need tattoos, but everyone needs to be united to the Son by the Spirit that they might fully enjoy the love of the Father. What that means for us is that in eternity, in the ages to come, Eric will still be Eric. And Nathan will still be Nathan and Hannah will still be Hannah, and you will still be you in eternity. You will not, your sanctification and even your glorification does not mean you will lose your individuality. Godliness is not sameness. And so stop trying to run from yourself, Christian. Run from your sin. Yes, but embrace your God-given personality, your God-given individuality, and ask God how He means to use those particular things that make you, you, for His glory. When we gather around the throne in heaven, lifting our voices in praise of the Lamb, we will look around and see a multitude of unique individual image bearers. Unique in skin color and culture and language and personality, all reflecting the glory of the one Christ. Your God-given particularity is a necessary part of that scene, Christian. Because it takes billions of unique, glory-infused, redeemed individuals to reflect the glory of the one Son of God. So what does this mean for how we live our lives? That brings me to the third, final part of this sermon. That is looking at your unique works in the world. So we've talked about His particular, God's particular love for you as an individual, that He doesn't just tolerate you. He actually enjoys you. He likes what he made. We've talked about the fact that as you grow in Christ, you're growing into the person that he intended for you to be and the person that you will be for all of eternity. You're becoming the real you. So here's how all of that connects to living on mission. If you struggle to believe that God actually likes you, he likes what he made, if you struggle to believe that he has specifically and intentionally created you a particular way, you will also struggle to believe that he has very specific and particular ways that he intends to use you for his glory and on his mission. But when you begin to grasp his mind-blowing love for you and that he delights in you and that he made you very, very intentionally, then you will begin to look around for all of the ways that he 
is working around you and inviting you into the work that he's doing on the earth so that you can accomplish the very particular and specific things that he's prepared for you to do. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are his workmanship, his poema, his unique creation. He has designed you for works that he has prepared for you to do. You were created for good works, specific works that only you can accomplish because he's prepared them specifically for you. And maybe you wonder, have I already missed it? If you're still breathing, you haven't. If you're still here, he still has things for you. So whether you've got one year left or 70, God has work for you to do. He has purposes that he intends to use you to accomplish. Have you ever stopped and really thought about the fact that the people that we read about in the Bible are real people like you and I? They're not just characters in a story. They're real people. Um, The Bible is full of stories that illustrate the fact that God doesn't just work through generic humanity. He doesn't just work through the world in general, but that he works through, he chooses and he works through specific people for specific things. Think of Abraham. Think of Moses, Joshua, Ruth, David, Mary, the disciples, Paul. Each and every person God handpicked and, and sent them on mission. He, 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 he had specific things that only they could do to glorify him. Let's take a look at one of those characters, Moses, and consider the ways that he was uniquely prepared by God all of his life to accomplish the things that God used him to do. Um, You're probably familiar with the story of Moses walking into the palace and, and the showdown with Pharaoh where he says that God's demanded that he let his people go. And maybe you're familiar with the the fact that after that he led God's people through the wilderness for 40 years. But have you ever thought about how God had been preparing him for those things? Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter as a baby, grew up in Pharaoh's palace and learned under the best of Egypt's teachers. So when Moses walked into the presence of Pharaoh, demanding that he let God's people go, even though he was talking to the most powerful leader on the earth at the time. He was also talking to someone that he knew, someone that he had a history with. When he walked into the palace, he wasn't walking into a foreign place. He was walking into a place that he was familiar with. And I, and I can only imagine that as he took those steps and as he made his way up to Pharaoh, that he thought about the fact that God had prepared him 
for such a time as this. Or think about his time in the wilderness. After his first 40 years in Egypt, Moses, in anger, in an outburst of anger, kills an Egyptian who was beating an Israelite slave. And then he runs for his life and he, he flees to Midian and he, he begins to live as a shepherd in Midian, shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. And I can only imagine that during that 40 years, he wondered, have I blown it? Have, has my sin ruined God's plan for my life? I mean, I'm out here with these sheep. But little did he know that all those years learning how to live in the wilderness and shepherd sheep were preparing him for his next 40 years where he would be living in the wilderness and shepherding God's sheep. And there's no way that Moses could have known what it was that he was being prepared to do. And honestly, there's not much chance that you or I could even imagine what it is that God wants to do with us in the days ahead. But here's what I know. You and I can have confidence because of Ephesians 2.10 that God has uniquely designed you and he has uniquely prepared you for specific works that only you can do to bring glory to him and to advance his mission. Now, why does all of this matter? What, what is the motivation for all of this? Simply put, it's because life isn't about you. Your life and mine is one part, albeit a crucial part, of a bigger and more glorious story that's been unfolding since the beginning of time and will continue to unfold until the coming ages. Ultimately, it matters that you discover and do the works God specifically designed for you to do because God is worthy of those things. He is worthy. If somehow we could only see Him now, seated on the throne in heaven, as, Revelations 4, as Revelation 4 pictures Him, seated on a throne from which comes flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, surrounded by magnificent heavenly beings, crying out in unceasing worship, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." If somehow you could see that scene, you would pour out every ounce of strength in your body in response of worship, and you would give every moment of the rest of your life to glorifying Him. But you can see Him if you have eyes of faith. The Bible says we can see the unseen by faith. And 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that we can come to see the glory of God by looking at the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. So, Christian, if you want to see what ought to motivate you to mission, 
what ought to motivate you to look for the works that God is inviting you into, that he's prepared for you to walk in before time, then look to Jesus who accomplished everything that the Father prepared for him to walk in. Look to him who gave his life as an offering for your sins and mine. Look to Jesus who conquered sin and death and then rose to glorious life. And then I want to encourage you as you leave here to take some time today and pray and ask God to open your eyes to the reality of his love for you, that he actually likes you, that he delights in you. And then ask him to show you the things that are not sin, uh, that are uniquely the things that make you you. And then finally ask him to reveal to you how he wants to use you to glorify Him on the earth and to advance His mission in ways that only you can. And then next week, we'll pick this back up and we'll learn more specifically what it looks like to live our lives on mission. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, I believe that the things that we've looked at today the truths that we have discussed today in your word have the potential to change our lives. They have the potential to change our relationship with you, the way that we pray. They have the potential to fill our hearts with joy, overflowing and passion for your glory and your kingdom. But Lord, only you can give us the revelation that is required for it to change our lives. And so I ask that you would do that. I ask that, Lord, if, if we don't see it yet, that you would help us to seek you until we do. And to believe it, Lord, that we really are loved with a great love. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.